The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live on bread alone. Then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant. The devil said to him, I shall give to you all this power and glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I may give it to whomever I wish. All this will be yours if you worship me. Jesus said to him in reply, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. Him alone shall you serve. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem, made him stand on the parapet of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him in reply, It also says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Several events and occasions converge today, February the 14th. It is St. Valentine's Day, a day when sweethearts, married couples, engaged couples, boyfriends and girlfriends, uh, give to each other signs of their love and affection. It also happens to be World Marriage Day, a day I suspect, strongly suspect, was established by the Vatican some years ago on this day as a way to remind ourselves that marriage is not simply a human and secular institution, but rather that God himself is the author of marriage and that marriage universally is part of God's plan for creation. And then, of course, it's also the first Sunday of Lent, a time each year when we listen to one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation in the desert uh, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. If you'll allow me a, a humble attempt to integrate these three things. Marriage in the Bible is one of the central motifs for understanding God's salvific work uh, on behalf of the human race. When we read the Bible from beginning to end, marriage continually is presented to us as an instrument whereby God blesses creation and whereby God is working to, to redeem creation. The Bible begins with a marriage. After God has created the world and everything in it, the last piece of creation is the human person, male and female, 
both created in the image and likeness of God, and joined together, as God says, be fertile and fruitful, fill the earth and have dominion over it, have stewardship over it, take, take care of it. He, he plants them in a garden to cultivate the garden, you see, to, to take something good and to make it even better. And this is the way God initially blesses the whole of creation that's already good, but now through the man and the woman joined together in this life-giving relationship of love, God, you know, blesses it and, and makes it even better. Trouble is, of course, sin enters in. And with sin, there begins this process of distortion and corruption. Uh, creation becomes disordered and out of, out of sync, out of whack. God doesn't throw up his hands and give up and, you know, abandon things. He continues to work with the human race in and through the human race and the primary tool he uses is marriage marriage and family life he brings people together Abraham and Sarah uh, Jacob and Leah and Rebecca Isaac and Rachel see he he establishes marriages through which offspring are brought into the world and it's through this family this tribe that God establishes covenants whereby he slowly begins to draw the human race back to himself. When we look at the prophetic literature again and again and again, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, they use marriage as the, the metaphor to help Israel understand its relationship to God. It's like the relationship between a husband and a wife, a bridegroom and a bride. God has espoused himself to you, the prophets remind Israel. Uh, as a bridegroom marries a bride, so shall your builder marry you, the prophets say. In particular, Hosea sees this metaphor as the primary means by which we understand God's relationship to the people he has drawn to himself in covenant. Trouble is, the people continually go off pursuing other lovers. They commit the spiritual sin of adultery through their infidelity, but God does not abandon them. He continually goes after them to woo them back, to draw them back, and to heal them and restore them. We come to Jesus. Again and again and again, Jesus speaks of himself as the bridegroom and tells parables about a king that gives a wedding feast for his son. Jesus is the one in, through, in whom and through whom God is at work joining to himself a people in a kind of marriage relationship, an intimate bond of life-giving love so that this people can be for the world what we call a sacrament, a sign and an instrument of what God is striving to do with the whole of the human race. And when we come to the very end of the sacred scriptures, the book of Revelation, God cons when God's saving work is consummated at last, the vision that we're given is of the new and eternal Jerusalem, the, the heavenly city descending out of heaven, coming to earth to be God's dwelling place with the human race. 
And this city, this new and eternal Jerusalem, is described as a bride adorned for her husband. The scriptures began with a marriage, Adam and Eve. It ends with a marriage, God joining to himself the human race in this intimate bond of covenant love. What does this have to do with the desert wanderings and the desert temptation of Jesus? In the Bible, the prophet saw the exodus, God's rescuing his people from slavery, and leading them to Mount Sinai where he makes a covenant with them. That's the marriage. And the remainder of the 40 years of wandering in the desert, the covenant at Sinai actually happened fairly early on in the desert wanderings. The rest of the time was, is described by the prophets as a kind of honeymoon period where God, you know, draws the people closer and closer to himself. Not always, because the people have this tendency to mistrust God, to doubt, even to long for the flesh pots of Egypt, where at least they had three square meals a day, not like the desert, where you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. But through the water from the rock and the manna from heaven, God sustains the people and strives to shape them and form them in the life that he wants them to live. So that by the time they get to Canaan, that relationship will be strong enough to enable them to endure the temptations that they will encounter in the land of Canaan in terms of these alien gods. But it doesn't last. The people continually pursue these other gods and forsake the covenant, you know, committing the sin, again, the spiritual sin of adultery, idolatry. Jesus, in his desert temptation, he recapitulates this event. Only in Jesus, we see someone who, who sees it through in a faithful manner. He resists the temptations. He says no to the enticements of the devil, who's been at work making mischief from the beginning by sowing seeds of division and estrangement and alienation. God is trying to draw creation back to himself in a communion of life and love. But the devil is constantly at work pulling things apart. That's what the word devil uh, means in Greek, diabolos, from what we get the word diabolic. It literally means to tear apart, to, to, um, to sever, you see. That's the work of the devil. And that's what Jesus encounters, the one who is trying to sever him from his mission, from his relationship to God. And how does the devil do that? Well, he does it the way he consistently does it in all of our lives. He tries to get Jesus to focus on two things, both of which are good and important, but which are not ultimate and of highest importance. On the one hand, he tries to get Jesus to focus on his bodily needs, his material needs. Jesus has fasted for 40 days, and as the story says, he's hungry. And it's at that moment that the devil strikes. He comes at Jesus to try to get Jesus to use his power, his relationship to God, to satisfy his bodily hunger. If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. Feed yourself. Use your power to, to satisfy your physical hunger. 
Now, physical hunger is a need that we have. And there's nothing wrong with satisfying that need to an extent. But it's not our greatest need. It's not our highest need. Our highest needs are not physical and material. They are spiritual. It is the spirit and the soul that are the most important aspects of our lives, not our bodies. Now, that doesn't mean our bodies are not important or not good. They are. God created us with bodies. The incarnation, God becomes flesh. He takes on a human body. The resurrection will be the resurrection of the body. So God is not anti-body, anti-material. It's just that the body is not what is most important. It is our spiritual life that trumps our physical life because it is the spiritual life that animates our bodies and gives authentic life to our bodies. And that's what Jesus chooses, not the body, but the spirit. Human beings do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. It is the word of God that has spirit and life. The devil also attacks us at the level of our egos. This kind of perceived need that we have to kind of know things like fame and popularity and, and influence. And how does he do it? He offers to Jesus all the power and glory that the world possesses. Worship me, and I will give you all of this power and glory. Think of how wonderful that would be, having all the wealth at your fingertips, having you know, all the glory and fame and popularity that anybody could possibly have. Think of all the good things you could do if people liked you that much. You see, what a temptation that would be. But it's a temptation that's addressed at the level of the ego. Jesus, again, says no to that, not because the ego in itself is bad, but because Jesus knows that the ego is not where authentic life is to be found. Authentic life is to be found by serving God alone, the Lord. And through that relationship to God of serving other people. And what's necessary in that is not the gratification of our egos, but learning the disciplines of self-control. The disciplines that help us then to give our lives in sacrificial service of others. To... To, to lay down our lives that others might live. And that, paradoxically, is the way in which the fullness of life comes to us. And that's the path that Jesus chooses. Lent is a time when we go with Jesus, as it were, into the desert to face these temptations and challenges, these choices that we have to make. Will I live simply by my bodily and material needs? Or will I live a deeper life in the spirit by aligning my life with God's word, heavenly wisdom? Am I going to live my life at the level of ego gratification? Or am I going to discipline my life to discover and learn the self-control that is necessary for me in order to give my life in service to God and others. 
to live a life that is lovingly sacrificial as Jesus's was? Those are the questions that Lent places before us because those are the temptations that the devil constantly seeks to entice us by. He's enticing us with something good, something that is a part of what we need to deal with in life. But the devil is trying to get us to see those needs and those issues as of ultimate importance, as of highest importance, and they're not. What's of highest importance is the spirit and the soul, the self-discipline necessary to embrace a life of loving, sacrificial service. That's where true joy, true life is to be found. And that's, in a sense, what marriage is all about. Marriage is a summons for two people, a man and a woman, to come together and to give themselves in sacrificial love to one another so that through them God can bring new life into the world and by the quality of their relationship show to the world what God wants everyone to know, what God's own life is like. The God who is not some egomaniac, but a loving servant. A God who is not simply about indulging one's body, but about living an authentic life in the spirit. This is what Jesus has come to show us. That God is like a bridegroom who longs to take to himself an entire people as a kind of bride, to give his life in sacrificial love for their sake so that they might learn from that how to give their lives in sacrificial love for the sake of the world. And so to know the authentic life, which is a life in communion with God and one another in love. But the devil is at work making mischief, sowing seeds of division, mistrust, fear, alienation, and estrangement, always trying to pull us apart. And he always does so by attacking us at the level of our physical needs and our tendency to seek ego gratification. Lent says, no, attend to the spirit. Discipline oneself that one might embrace a fuller, more joyful and more generous life of loving service and so know the life in communion with God and one another that God wants all of creation to know.